Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. Two blokes who watch too much YouTube, talking about YouTube and then posting it to YouTube, brackets and podcasts. I am Chris Ratcliffe. As ever, I'm joined by Martin Spain. And later on, we're going to do something called a movie review. We haven't done one of those in a while. It's been a while. I think we can remember how to do it. We're going to be talking about Villeneuve Peroni. That's it, isn't it? That's the full title. Or it's is called it? Villeneuve Peroni, and we're not talking about the beer. It's P-I-R-O-N-I, not P-E-R-O. I can't spell. <laughs> it, it, it's not like Star Trek colon into darkness, is it? It's, it's... No. Or not the MP4-12C. <laughs> oh, the clunkiest of all the names. Anyway, let's talk about some news first of all um there isn't a lot because we did a lot in the last episode where we kind of caught up but there was one news story that was reported in yahoo but actually i think came from planet f1 which caught my eye talking about the upcoming f1 movie and i don't know if you've if you've seen this marty but there was a an um, an investor's call with F1, because F1 is now publicly traded under... Oh, what's the stock ticker for F1? I won't say FOM. Is it something it, like Fast or something? It's uh, something like that. Isn't it gimmicky, gimmicky like that? I can't remember. It is. Hold on. <laughs> while, while Marty does some research. So they were talking about the upcoming F1 movie with uh, Brad Pitt, producing and acting in it, Lewis Hamilton, consulting, Top Gun Maverick people, etc., etc. Um, There were two things that caught my eye. The first one was a comment from Dominicali um, saying, uh, and I'm quoting here from the, uh, from the Planet F1 story, we're going to start shooting in Silverstone very soon, and you will see it will be the first movie when basically they will be within the racing event. Now, I don't know how many films Stefano Domenicali has time to watch. I'm fairly sure there have been films filmed within racing events previously. And in the case of Le Mans, actually during the race. And how much, how brilliant would it be if there was actually a camera car kind of going around the streets of Azerbaijan or Monaco or something, 10 seconds a lap slower than everybody else, but actually out there driving. I think I would love to see it. I'd love that. to see it. I, I, honestly, if, that, if they're going to film stuff for this movie, chuck them out in practice. Make practice more exciting. Mm. Uh, put, a, put a car out there. I don't know, bolt it to a 2008 Red Bull or something. Um, I don't know. But do that Frankenheimer thing that he did for Grand Prix actually yes. stick it, real cameras on real cars and capture that footage that you are not going to get anywhere else. Or mind you, I don't know, I suppose um, Liberty are going to be like, no, just pay us money for all the 4K cameras we litter over all these, <laughs> these Formula One cars. You can have a camera angle from the underside of the front wing. <laughs> <laughs> get, get Anthony Davidson, because he's at a bit of a loose end these days. Stick him in an old Super Aguri with a Sony Venice strapped to the nose. That'd be great. Although, uh, mind you, you say that, but I don't think Anthony Davidson was doing commentary for the WEC last weekend in Portugal. Mm. 
So, and he's still doing uh, presenting for Formula One. It's just the fact that we've had 8,000 years between the last race and the one that's coming up this year. Everyone has died. Planets have risen and fallen. Stars have, you know, been created. We've had six ice ages because, you know, they couldn't find another place to hold a race, which is just stupid. You could have gone to Portimao, I'm just saying. Kick the work lot out. They're not as fast. That's true. That's true. Um, but anyway, anyway, I have found out what the Formula One group is listed at. Go on. Um, this is in the, it's F Wonk. F W O N K. F Wonk. F Wonk. Yeah. Um, but I think that's in the US because Liberty Media Core Series A are listed on the London Stock Exchange as the slightly less amusing Zero J U J. Right. Oh, Juju. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Silly news ticker, um, sorry, stock ticker things aside, I I don't know what to make of all of this Brad Pitt filming nonsense because inevitably it's going to go straight to streaming and be shit, right? <laughs> I I have hopes. I have hopes. So here's my, my, my thing with it. I'm, I'm very conflicted because I think Top Gun Maverick was amazing. I think most people agree with that. Oh, that's true. I'd forgotten that Joseph Krasinski is um, directing it. Sorry. Yes. Let's try that again. Joseph Krasinski. Um, I've had half a glass of whiskey and I can't talk. <laughs> um, and he is amazing. I've liked all of his films, so maybe it won't be completely shit. Yeah. But I just, unless you have the wholehearted agreement from like all 10 teams and cameras nailed to the side of Williams and stuff, it just... How I don't see how you're going to capture the kind of exciting footage that you did, that they did with with Maverick, where they actually put cameras inside of real aircraft going at real aircraft speeds. You cannot do Formula One justice without actually having cameras on Formula One cars, in Formula One cars. Now, maybe you can just use the broadcast ones, but I suspect they're going to want to use you know, oh, the, God, the, no. the, the stuff they developed for Maverick or similar stuff. And... I haven't, or maybe maybe you just don't hear about this stuff until after it's happened, but you'd expect to see teams with cars rigged up to do this. And the the magic of F1, particularly current F1, is in the cornering forces and the braking mm. distances. You cannot do that with a camera rig car. You just can't. Road cars, supercars, hypercars, even regular race cars cannot corner or stop like a Formula One car. They just can't. And if you want to do this justice, you have to have realism. You have to try and capture what it is to hurl a car into a corner at 180 miles an hour and pull 5G. And not just speed the footage up. And not just speed the footage up or, you know, try and get away with using some Formula 3 Lolas or, or whatever it is that, that Driven did or, or any mm. of these kind of things. You just can't fake it. It's the thing that makes Rush a bit of a tricky rewatch because you just sit there going, well, I know that car's not real and that car's not real. And that's, and, you and know, that's, that, that's Park and that's, that's Brands Hatch. <laughs> uh, now, we are picky, of course, and... and most people watching these things won't have a clue, but I recently rewatched uh, Ford versus Ferrari, and I'm mm. so taken out of the movie in the bits where they're trying to show them all sat when it's clearly just a highway somewhere in America. <laughs> and I think this is the thing that they they can do with F1 is that if you go to a circuit on a Wednesday, a Thursday before the race, everything's up. Or it, <laughs> I guess there's two problems for the production company. One is that the um, what do you do about all the sponsors? Because if you, if you run on the Monday or you run on the Wednesday before the event, 
then you've got all the sponsors' banners up, which you've then got to agree with all of them. But also, you can't, like, I know they can put crowds in the grandstands, but, you know, where do they put the pit and the paddock and, and how are they going to run the cars? And also, with Top Gun Maverick, you've got two or three planes in formation because that's kind of how planes work. How are they going to have 20 cars do a race start with a camera car in there unless they're doing that at private sessions and then cutting in close-ups into other... I I don't know, but I think my my bigger problem with this film... So Dominicali is basically saying, we've got to be cautious because this film is going to be quite invasive, which means track time, which means, you know, people are going to be trying to work to f one schedule and F1 has to work around their schedule. There was a story about them banning track walks... Uh, no, not banning track walks, banning bicycles on Moving. track walks or scooters. Yeah, oh, right, yeah. Where So basically it said to drivers, like, you can only walk for some reason. And there was a track walk at one race which was moved in terms of time to accommodate Will I Am filming a music video with an F1 show car on track during the weekend. And if you read this article, and we'll put a link in the show notes, they all all the talk about it is... We are really happy with Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive has been a great publicity tool and we know that's not going to last forever. So we need to find the next publicity tool. We've doing more with social media. The drivers are doing more to promote the sport. We're going to Miami. We're going to Las Vegas because it promotes the sport. You know, F1 are buying property in Las Vegas to support the race. And it's like, at what point does the entertainification of F1 start impacting on F1? When does the tail start wagging the dog? And we've talked about the Faustian pact of Drive to Survive, that the teams go, we want the coverage on the really, really popular thing. Well, do you? Yes. Well, will you do whatever we ask of you? Yes. Because that's kind of like, there's a marketing person going, we've got to do it. It's huge. It's high profile. And then the engineers and the drivers and the mechanics going, well, yeah, but, you know, we've got like race and things. Yeah, the whole point of this <laughs> this this thing is that we are racing. We're not here to be entertainment first, sport second. It's yeah. it's it's a it's a mix of the two. And to be fair, this isn't just to do with TV. F1 is currently undergoing a sort of a crisis of, should we throw red flags all the time because it's more entertaining mm. versus is it safe? I, I don't wish to repeat that because there's tons of F1 podcasts that have all gone into this ad infinitum during the 80,000 billion light years that have been since the last F1 race. Sorry, Max Verstappen victory. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I'd like to say I, this... I was cautiously optimistic about the film and then I was like, nah, it's going to be shit and go straight to streaming. This is not at all influenced by the fact that I've watched a couple of movies quite recently on streaming services that I thought, nah, this has clearly been seen in a rough cut state by some producer and they've just gone, nap, flog it to streaming, this is rubbish. Did you see the new Guy Ritchie one? Uh, yes, I'm thinking of both that and the new Dexter Fletcher one ghosted on Apple TV+. And don't get me wrong, I love Guy Ritchie. The Gentleman is one of my favourite movies from him. It's better than um, Snatch in in my for my money and features an incredible number of usages of 
a word I will not repeat on this podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, Operation Fortune colon Ruse de Guerre was shit. Yeah. Oh. Like, Aubrey, Pla- Aubrey Plaza was the best thing in it. And I just, it made no sense. And I don't know why Go Ritchie decided to make something so strangely po-faced. And, uh, you know, I watched uh, Ghosted on Apple TV Plus. It's got nothing to do with cars. But, uh, you know, it's got Chris Evans. It's got um, Anna de Armas. It's directed by TV's Dexter Fletcher. And... Who I once saw on a Boris bike in London. I, I Don't get me wrong. Again, I love Dexter Fletcher. I've loved a lot of his movies. He's, he's brilliant as an actor. He's been a really solid sort of journeyman get the job done, deliver a good product director. He's not flashy. He's not, you know, he's not your, uh, he's not a Joseph Krasinski or, you know, David Fincher or anything like that, but he does get the job done. But this most recent movie was terrible and made me think what, there's going to be more racing movies because they're going to want to cash in, like you say. Mm. And I'm not sure. You know, I re- rewatching Ford versus Ferrari, I thought all the bits I like about this are the bits that haven't got cars in. <laughs> See, I think there's going to be a curve where when the first footage starts coming out, particularly at race weekends, and the first behind-the-scenes featurettes that Channel 4 and Sky in the UK and F1 will have YouTube shorts and TikToks and all of this sort of thing about the camera cars, about the filming, about the actors, about the training they've gone through, because I'm sure they'll be training about the replicas. Well, I was about thinking about it. This, Yeah, this reminds me of that Mission Impossible clip we saw from Tom Cruise, where he's learning how to fly a motorcycle. Um, yes. When I say fly, I mean ride it off of the edge of a cliff safely. And there was like a 20-minute feature on that, and the movie's not going to be out till next year. Yeah. And, you know, I can totally see them doing something like that for F1 and they would need to do it to get everybody on side, particularly the F1 fans. So, yeah, that's probably going to be a thing. But then, we'll reserve judgment until um, we see anything yeah. more from this movie. <laughs> there, there will be plenty of thoughts and there will be a highs and, and lows. And <laughs> ho- hopefully <laughs> yes, we'll get to the cinema. That will be, uh, be the real thing, I think. That would be good. That would be good. Right, let's move on to what we've been watching. Um do you want to kick it off? I will kick it off. Um, so I, in the absence of uh, motor racing, apart from, I have to say, the Berlin E-Prix from the weekend, I know you're not the world's biggest Formula E fan. It was a yes, weird might, race. Just, I saw a clip from it. A friend of mine sent me a, um, a clip of some driver going for an absolutely no-hope outbreaking manoeuvre down there that just where the car just was never going to stop and then slid out and took some other people out. And then Dan ticked him into lots of other people in the way that he does yeah. uh, and then con- you know, wouldn't accept any blame for it in the way that he does. Um, uh, well, I thing- don't know. I just don't know what Formula E is for anymore because it's clear that not very many people are watching it and there aren't that many teams there anymore and the circuits are really boring. So where is this why is it I mean where where do you watch it right is it on Sky no is it on BBC no can I scream it free on YouTube really obviously yes also no really yeah it's on the channel for YouTube channel they, they, they but why isn't it on the Formula E YouTube channel because- why isn't it just like stream it there I don't want to watch channel 4 I want to see it on the Formula E channel because that's really clear. I wouldn't have known to look for it on Channel 4. I know. I have, I've had to search for it. The thing with Berlin, I will, I will say this quickly and then move on to other things before your blood pressure 
become no, problematic it's again. It's all good. It's all good. It's, Sorry, um, I just totally interrupted to rant about how shit Formula E is. Carry on. <laughs> so the thing with Berlin was that the straights were quite long. And as a result, the slipstream was really, really strong. And Formula E is all about efficiency. So you had a race where, or two races, where nobody wanted to be in the lead. Apart from, with like two laps to go, it was almost kind of like watching the Indy 500 or NASCAR or something where it's just like... And that does sound interesting because Formula E cars have only got like, they can only do a heat race. So they can do like seven minutes and they need to pick them up and take the cover (laughs) off and change the battery like you do with radio control cars. What's what? And the, so you uh, have a really long straight, and they're just <laughs> yes, exactly. But they have a really long straight, which inhales battery power, yeah, because drag squares with speed and all that kind of sciencey stuff. So I can see why this would be a problem. But equally, it's one of my favourite things about the Indy 500 is the last kind of fifty laps is where it really comes alive when people actually start trying instead of just looking to hit their fuel numbers. Mm. Um. Moving on. Ovals, that's what we need to do. Ovals, ovals. You can get rid of like, okay, we don't need... You could just do it. This is where Robo Race should go, right? Get rid of the drivers from Formula E. Sorry, guys, you've, you've had your salad days. It's time to go. <laughs> get rid of the steering because you don't need that. Just put a computer in there that can operate one pedal and run the cars round ovals. No, no, no. Right. Do you remember Tamir used to do those little radio control... Uh, not radio controlled. They were battery-powered models. They were like... I mean, they were literally like four inches long, I think, to remember. And they had no steering, basically a go switch, and then like casters on each corner. So you could go I remember to like, those kinds of things. You could go, go to an oval, put like, you know, a, a shopping cart wheel on each side of, a, of an indie car, run it up against the barrier, and then just like floor it and just let Which it Which is just like that, that, guy, that guy did at that NASCAR race, yes. you know, the, the famous Hail Mary pass, or what great. I did to pass almost every oval racing thing on Gran Turismo 1, when you just, <laughs> there was no damage or and there was no slowing down when you hit the barrier. So you just hit the barrier the whole time and then you didn't have to worry about steering. Anyway, 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 anyway let's move on. So speaking of racing... Um, one channel that I've been really enjoying over the past few weeks and months is uh, a channel called Team Prawn Racing, which I think I've mentioned before because um, I have I have met Nick in the past. So Nick is basically a guy who bought an Audi A3, started doing track days in it, started racing it, and it's the most it's the thing that YouTube does the best, which is one bloke in his garage building a race car, going racing with it, and then fixing it and making it better, and just himself. And the BARC, because he's now racing in Thunder Saloons, I think it is, which is, again, is its own weird, wonderful series. So basically, he's in a turbo Audi A3 with like 500-odd horsepower, up against M3s, um, an Aston Martin V8 Volante, one of like the one from... um, was it Live and Let Die? And Abby Eaton was in a V8 Holden, all in the same race. It was brilliant. Love Team Prawn Racing. Hard Up gar- Garage. The guy... Um, Hard Up Garage. 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 garage? Who, who are you? <laughs> I, I know. It's uh, Hard Up Garage. Garage. With, garage. With, what's his name? <laughs> who was always on VinWiki. He started posting a bit more recently, and he's... Um, He's only like 30,000 subscribers. And him and Tavarish and um, Scott Rasarossa, he's he's bought a 
uh, 4.30. Not as good. We'll get on to that. And yeah, sort of in this huge warehouse full of knackered supercars. Um, it's kind of... Where is this warehouse? And what, where, can I go there and get one really cheaply? I, uh, how good are you with the spanners? Hmm... I mean, Maybe to be fair, as good as they are. none of them have been like underwater, but uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a rebuild project coming for that. A um, couple of others. I've, I've been, been watching a lot of Larry Chen and he did a, a show for Haggerty with this guy in Japan who was like, he's kind of like singer, but for like mid nineties Ferraris and he's just not mid-90s, uh, 2000s Ferraris, and he's like going through Ferraris that he's modified in a way that I've never, ever seen anybody modify a, an Enzo. Um, and I have to say, if you haven't watched any of Larry Chen's stuff, he's not Jason Camisa in that sort of documentary way. But how he finds the people that he finds, he just, he finds all these people that you've never heard of and then just sort of steps out the way. I think because he's a photographer, he's not yeah. the story. He kind of goes, look but at this thing. But also he's looking for the story. He's looking yes. for the story. He has the eye for looking for people. And, you know, we've we've been told a number of times that it's not necessarily the cars that are the interesting thing with a lot of these. It's the people yes. that make the cars or behind the ideas that are as interesting, if not more so. I have not watched a lot of Larry Chen's stuff. I'm kind of saving it up almost um i do follow him on instagram but he posts about a billion pictures every day to his story so i find it quite hard to get through um but yes i i that's one i've kind of shelled for a quiet day and there haven't yeah. been too many of those recently so um <laughs> what one last one that i will mention um i'm going to come on to another similar one later but um there's a youtube called alex gillen who is a sim racer amongst other things and he did a couple of videos, or he's done a few videos at Monaco. One where he was trying to watch the race without buying a ticket and trying to find spots to watch it. But he did one, um, what Monaco is like two months before the race. And if you if you find things like this interesting, if you want to see Monaco without it being Monaco, without it being like the circuit, I, I'd really love, love to go one day, just like have a day trip and just walk around the circuit because it's I've I've done that I've or to be fair I've done half of that uh yeah. when on holiday well quite a while ago my, my son was quite young um which meant we could go on a holiday out of season so we went to the south of France in September with the in-laws and then left my son with the in-laws for a day and took the train down the coast which is a beautiful ride to Monaco and then spent the morning walking the Grand Prix circuit in the direction you would expect so um <laughs> first corner up the hill and the thing that strikes you and everyone says this but it is very true it it's so narrow yeah. so narrow that you can't believe cars can drive around this anything other than 20 miles an hour and then <laughs> when you go around the hairpin it's so tight that you wouldn't believe that anything could go around there and you know Even sometimes small, small battery powered cars can't go around there <laughs> if you go too quickly and they fall over and hit bollards but yes uh, we walked around through the tunnel and then down the hill and I think we had to stop then because of the most Monaco of reasons. There was a super yacht show on and they closed the back <laughs> half of the circuit. 
I'm, I'm sorry, sir. The plebs aren't allowed this way here. It was pretty much that, to be honest. They would, they asked us if we wanted to pay 100 euros to go into the Super Yacht Show, and we politely declined. <laughs> but there you go. Um, it's it's definitely worth going. So I can, I'm can i going to have to check this out to see if my recollections match, definitely. Um, match that video. What about you? What have you been watching recently? Uh, so quite a lot of things uh, in terms of racing stuff I watched the the World Endurance Championship over the last weekend as mentioned in uh, Portimao in Portugal I really enjoyed that I'm not 100% sure on WEC as a championship right now because we've got somewhat of a gulf between the LMH cars and the LMDH cars so Toyota and Ferrari are running in the LMH category and I think maybe one of the other cars is too but then Porsche and BMW and others are running in the LMDH category which is kind of like less exciting it's basically a spec car and they are much slower so it's not really a competition right now but anyway I really enjoyed that I always enjoy watching those um, because Anthony Davidson's commentary is obviously very good there's a couple of other people on there every now and then uh, um, Jethro Bovingdon pops up on my telly uh, which is always enjoyable Um, I think he posted some stuff to his Instagram saying, why are Porsche so good looking and yet so slow? And so I was messaging back and forth with him saying, why are they so slow, Jethro? Go and find out. (laughs) Because it offends me. But uh, anyway, I I very much enjoyed that. I watched watched a bit of IndyCar. Uh, There's just too much crashing going on at the moment for me to really get into it. I think there's a bit too much Mm. send it and hope. for me oh. to really enjoy it. But I'm enjoying the fact that I can, you know, IndyCar is having something of a resurgence in terms of the quality of drivers in it and racing and competition and so on. And so it's it's nice to pick that up while there's a dearth of F1 racing. In terms of stuff online, I was sent a video review of the Porsche 918 Spider from Throttle House. Mm. And I haven't really watched anything of theirs. You did actually highlight them in episode 53 as a channel that we haven't heard of, but somehow they have 2.52 million subscribers. <laughs> so they're not doing too badly. This was sent to me by a friend of the show, Chris Frew, who said, you know, you might not want to mention it on the podcast, but it's really funny. And he's right. It is really funny. Um, one Brit, one Canadian driving a 918 Spider very fast up and down a road and freaking out about how fast it is <laughs> and how it sounds and losing the ability to speak, which is wonderful because it it's a real proper reaction. I was watching it thinking of how Harris and Meaden and those others who review these things on a semi-regular basis just didn't do that. They didn't have a speechless moment. They didn't mm. have a moment where they were just just swearing constantly because they couldn't think of anything else to say. (laughs) The shock of a normal person in a hypercar is so well articulated in this video. It's a brilliant video. Please go and watch it. Um, Definitely. That's that was thoroughly enjoyable. I, I, um, I've also I really went and started looking at uh, used nine one eights after that. Oh, uh, of, of the Holy Trinity it is definitely the one I would have were I a very very wealthy man. Although not the cheapest, I think the P one's probably the cheapest. The isn't P one, well, looking at current prices as of twenty twenty three, the P one is about one point two million. Unless it's been in a flood. Unless it's been in a flood. Um, it'll end up being 1.2 million afterwards. Um, the P the 918, whether it's a VISAC or not, affects it slightly. I think you're looking about 1.4 million. The LaFerrari, or I, I, I still want to call it the Ferrari, the Ferrari, <laughs> is um, 
I, I was asking our, our friend well over Matt two Batch. million. Yes, yeah, well, like well over two million pounds, but didn't. No, no, yeah, no. What, what did Matt say for how much they uh, are in uh, dollars? Well, they're in the UK. They're about four million pounds. Whoa, four million pounds. Macari have got a convertible Aperta for four point six at the moment. So you That's could buy. Insane. You could buy for the price of a of a Ferrari, the Ferrari. You could buy a P one, a nine eighteen. And a Carrera GT with change, and that wow. would be one heck of a garage. That's no, that's no question. That's that's not value. I mean, who's buying these things for that kind of money? People, oh, I don't. Ferrari people, <laughs> Ferrari people. But yeah, that's that's very weird. So yes, um, speaking of Ferraris, I have really been enjoying um, Rattarossa's series yes. on rebuilding a wrecked 430 Scuderia. This oh, yes. looks to be quite interesting because he does his own work on Ferraris, which is always interesting to watch because it's not often that you see kind of like what how well they're built or not and <laughs> how quality their workmanship is or not. Or not. <laughs> and this has been fascinating because this was in an accident and written off by the insurance company. I think it was it hit by a hit by a van or something or something had to like that, yeah. drive through a field, something like that. Destroyed one corner of it pre- fairly comprehensively. So one wheel knackered, suspension knackered, steering rack knackered, uh, various hits elsewhere. And, you know, buying the whole thing from the insurance company at 50 grand and then working out how you can put it back together properly and safely on a relatively safe budget. Um, mm. the fir- I will link the first video in the series, which I think is the one where they walk around the car spotting the things that are wrong and need doing. And then the Ferrari official parts price pops up next to it. And it's insane <laughs> how much Ferrari charge for things like, you know, 17,000 pounds for a steering rack or something stupid like that. Absolutely insane. Um, but uh, Rattarossa has a way of finding either solutions or finding bits from the US or from Europe Mm. and has like a a collection of bits himself. So I'm really enjoying seeing it being done on a DIY basis, even though he's, you know, very experienced with this kind of thing and he's putting official Ferrari parts in it and so on. It's still interesting to see one of these kind of slightly undressed as it were, and then seeing it being put back together um, and how much it's going to end up costing. It's the same thing I was saying about Team Prawn Racing is that, if like if you think of Matt Armstrong's GT3 that he's re- rebuilding at Tavares's shop, it's you know it's a workshop with tools. There's a camera person who's clearly filming what they're doing. But to see somebody trying to remove the steering rack of a Scuderia, um, Scuderia, sorry, on on their drive, not, in the rain, <laughs> in the rain, not reading the book, and you know the camera work is kind of. I, I don't want to say it's it's bad, but it's it's that kind of... It's less slick than some of his contemporaries. It's less slick, but perhaps in some ways more authentic. I think so. And I think this this, there with this, this particular series, I think, is doing quite well for his channel, which can be sometimes hit and miss depending on, on the audience. But he's a, he knows his stuff. And mm. I, I have a feeling that a lot of Ferrari purists absolutely hate him <laughs> for what he does. But I find it very, very interesting. Agreed. And yeah, finally, I want to give a shout out to... Obsessed Garage, who I think, again, you may have featured ages ago on the pod, and I've mentioned before now, largely a detailing channel. So if you're not into that kind of thing, maybe this isn't so interesting. But they've just launched this wash and drive series, which is the guy that owns Obsessed Garage, Matt Mormon, washing cars 
like special cars from people he knows or presumably maybe he's going to get press cars I don't know but then driving them as well and this is somebody who has OCD who has anxiety about driving and I thought it was a really interesting way of kind of forcing him out of his comfort zone to actually get in and drive cars Mm. they're not his cars so maybe that's the difference Um, but he's talked a lot about how he finds it very hard to drive a car he gets anxiety attacks and um, I just thought it was really interesting. It's really high, high production values, shot in 4K, beautifully made. But it's also, he's actually become quite an engaging presenter. And when he's doing this kind of thing where he's not, it's not the kind of stream of consciousness that you sometimes get with his videos. It's yeah. far more presented and it's more concise. And I really enjoyed it. The current, they've done one of, so, one of them so far on a 997 Gen 1 GT3 RS in which green? I forget what he said. Racing green, Porsche racing green or something like that. There's a particular green. It's not Viper green. It is the green of the GT3 RS that Richard Hammond had on that Top Gear episode where they took supercars to find the greatest driving road. That was Viper green. I am told that Some nerds will go, I think you'll find everyone thinks that that green is Viper green, but it actually isn't. Right. (laughs) Um, Prove me wrong, Porsche nerds. Uh, But it's green regardless. (laughs) And it's a good, good video. So, yeah, that's what I've been watching. But let's let's move on because, you know, we've 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 waffled and do and review. Yes. So Villeneuve Peroni, the film of the famous or would you say infamous disagreement Both apply. um yeah between which sounds like a ridiculous thing to make a film about but it does um so it, it it's the it's the kind of it's the relationship between Gilles Villeneuve and Didier Peroni who famously had a um so there were team orders at Ferrari. This is not in any way, well, this is a spoiler, but I mean, this is this is well-known racing folklore at this point. There was a gentleman's agreement between the two Ferrari drivers of the time, Gilles and uh, Didier, about who would win what race under what circumstances if the cars were running first and second. At one race, and I want to say Imola? Um, Zolder. Zolder. Thank you. Oh, no, sorry. Imola's where it all happened and Zolder yeah. was where Villeneuve was. But we, we're getting so, well ahead of ourselves, so here, I think. The, 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 the tale goes that um, there, was, there was a gentleman's agreement at Imola, Didier broke it, and Villeneuve, um, in his attempts to then try and beat the teammate that had, had betrayed him, um, was then killed in practice at Zolder at the next race. This is the extent of everything I knew about Gilles Villeneuve, Didier Peroni, and the incident. And I I, I thought somebody's made a film. I think you, you recommended that we review it because neither of us yeah, have watched so this, it. No, this, this is, it's been out for a, a little while now. It's I think it's available on Sky Documentaries. Yeah. Um, and... Sky were involved in making it. It's directed by Torkel Jones and it's co-written by him and someone called Gabrielle Clark, who is better known as a football reporter for ITV, which is interesting. Um, well, the most important thing along with these is to say these are not motor racing specialists. 
We're not talking Manish Pandey or we're not talking some of the other people who might make things about racing or specifically Formula One a lot. These are outsiders. And one of the reasons I think this document, this documentary works as well as it does is that they're not precious about things that Formula One fans might get or head to, oh, you forgot to mention this thing and you left out that thing. What they're trying to do is tell the story of two people who are the opposite sides of the same coin. Two racing drivers um, who end up coming into conflict with tragic consequences. Um, And it's, it's not what I thought it would be. What I thought it would be was here's them as kids and here's, you know, you think it's going to run up and they're going to show sort of all the way through their careers, flipping one to the other and then their time together at Ferrari and it's going to build to the crescendo of, spoiler alert, if you don't know how this ends, Gilles Villeneuve dying during qualifying at Zolder. And it doesn't. It gets it gets there, I think, almost slightly before halfway through and then you think, well, what, what's what's going to happen next? The joy of this is it's telling the backstory to a story that people think they know, which is that Didier Peroni was kind of the villain of the piece, sort of cold and calculating and just betrayed Villeneuve horribly by winning a race on the last corner of the last lap or the last overtaking point of the last lap where he should have stayed behind Gilles Villeneuve. And that was a betrayal of an agreement Villeneuve was incredibly angry and then in his anger went out, tried too hard and had an accident at the next race and was very sadly mortally injured. Yeah. But this goes into their personalities. It has wonderful archive footage, archive interviews of both of them, which haven't been seen since they were broadcast that show, you know, they're, Canadian TV interviews with Villeneuve, there's French TV interviews with with Peroni. And it gives you weight to what the talking heads, sort of the standard talking heads, almost Jackie Stewart crops up, Alan Prost crops up. There's a small little snippet of Bernie. Um, and it, it, when they say that the character, you know, he was full of life or he was a timid, quiet person, when you then see them talking or doing things in period, it... it it matches what the people, the experts and the talking heads are telling you. And you come to know a lot more about these characters than the sort of two-dimensional, well, Gilles Villeneuve was just on the lock stops all the time, driving cars with three wheels and overtaking everything in sight. And he was just all raw car control. And, and, and you know, Didier Peroni was this talentless idiot who happened to get into a good car. And, and it's never, you know, it's never as simple as that. It's never as black and white as that. And... I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I say enjoyed might be the wrong word. Mm. I really appreciated watching this. I found it quite a hard watch at times because it doesn't shy away from presenting the characters as they were as much as possible. It certainly doesn't shy away from showing you the accidents both of them had. But yeah. with all of these things, there is so much joy to find in the archive footage that's been found and put together for this. Again, I, I I don't know whether it's come from the Bernie archive. Obviously, there's the stuff I mentioned with the interviews and so on. But there's such amazing period footage. And 
because this happened so long ago, you know, this is not something I would think to go and look at the F1 archive to go and watch the 1981 season <laughs> or whatever. So it's really wonderful to see extended footage of Gilles Villeneuve driving the Ferraris in, you know, in racing that's not Dijon 79 or mm. anything with Didier Peroni. <laughs> so well, I, I really enjoyed watching all of that. So going into this, how much did you know about the two drivers? I knew more about Gilles Villeneuve because I've read a number of books on the history of F1 and I was aware of why he got so incensed with mm. Peroni that he'd overtaken when there was an agreement to not do that. But I didn't know the real history behind it. I didn't know the sort of the personal reasons. That's one of the fascinating things is this documentary is made with the full cooperation of both families. So both mm. the Villeneuve's and the Peronis and, you know, significant others, girlfriends, wives, kids are kids are interviewed for this and you know, give you a far more rounded picture of what was going on. And they do, they tell each side of the story, as you might expect. And there is still, I think, bitter rivalry there. It's it's become to be accepted, but it hasn't gone away. You know, the opening of the movie opens with um, Villeneuve's widow, Joanne, um, describing the whole thing as a betrayal and that it was hurtful mm. to a lot of people. And it's clear she's not forgiven. Um, she's not forgiven the, inc- you know, the Didier Peroni and will never forgive, I don't think. Um, and, you know, they've got Didier Peroni's girlfriend and then I think his wife, and the whole their side of things is is told as evenly and as fairly. I think mm. that's one of the the wonderful things about this. If you compare this to something like Senna, where they're telling it from one perspective, and it's almost to the detriment of actually being accurate, this I think is very very balanced, and it's to its credit that you are you come away with a greater appreciation for both people not just the the maverick hero Gilles Villeneuve in an opposite you know in a, you know oversteering ferrari you come away understanding way more about Didier Peroni than you might otherwise do i knew nothing about him how about yeah. you i i was the same i realized that the more i watched this i knew the legend of Gilles Villeneuve, but I didn't actually know that much. You're right. It's that thing where you remember the highlights. You know, you remember Senna at Monaco when he qualified more than a second ahead of everybody else. Or, you know, you remember those little snippets because they just get played endlessly and over and over and over. And I knew nothing really about Gilles Villeneuve, really. Um... I knew I literally nothing about Peroni. I knew the name. No idea who he was, what what he was like, any of that. Um, And I think that was really the fascinating thing with the documentary was that you could have easily played it as a Prost versus Senna story. And they didn't. Um, They gave both characters a very even billing in terms of not just in terms of, you know, not apportioning blame or anything like that, but also just in terms of how they they kind of let each character breathe. 
they told both stories. Um, you know, I think having, I mean, obviously Jacques Villeneuve and um, Gilles Villeneuve's daughter, the um, the two Peroni uh, boys as well, one of whom um, turns out is actually works for Mercedes F1, uh, Gilles Peroni, which uh, I thought was a nice kind of touch compared to Jacques Villeneuve at, uh, at Williams. Um, I really enjoyed seeing the footage of him on the podium with Lewis Hamilton yes. for the 2020 British Grand Prix. That was that was really nice, but I think you're and right. The fact I think- that the other little thing from that, sorry, I just want to pick up on yeah. this. One of the things that was kind of wonderful, in a slightly sad way, is that Didier Peroni's wife um, asked Joanne Villeneuve if she minded naming the twins. She was pregnant with twins when Didier Peroni was killed in 1987 in a powerboat racing accident and um his then widow was pregnant with twins and she asked Joanne if she would mind her naming the the children after Didier and Gilles and and I found that just such a, a a lovely gesture in that it wasn't meant with malice mm. and I found um, Joanne Vilner's response of she thought about it and you could see there's a part of her that wanted to say no but what harm could it do and it was it, and, and she was it was a lovely little moment of acceptance in a way I really really enjoyed that mm. you do get a cut bits of footage of the two sons one of whom looks disturbingly like Benedict Cumberbatch um, <laughs> yes uh, there's a wonderful quote from them where they they talk about being twins. You're always in competition with one another, wanting to be the best. Um, they're not in it for very long, but it is fascinating to see their input and the fact that every they're always going to be compared to their 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 father, maybe, or they're going they're always going to have that link to the past, given their names. Mm. Yeah. This is a really, really, it's a really interesting watch. It's, like I say, it's not an easy watch and no. it's quite long. It's sort of one hour, um, nearly one hour 50, I thought. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, 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 and that may be just me reflecting. Yeah. I remember because I was watching it on, on, I started watching it on the train into work and I remember looking at it thinking, oh, I, I know that this, this story kind of ends when Jill Villeneuve dies. So what are you going to do in an hour and 40? How are you going to stretch this out? But, Which is what I mean to say when I was completely wrong about how they were going to tell this story. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't drag at all. And I think as a piece of, no. as a piece of documentary making, um, so you, you, you mentioned the people behind it, the directors and the writers. So along with Sky Studios, um, it was a company called... Um, Noah Media Group were the other production company involved. And if you look at, at their their other work, they have done, I've now lost the, uh, the IMDb page for it. Their work is, I mean, it's all sports documentaries. Um, a lot of it is football. A lot of it is, um, I think they do, they've done a rock climbing documentary. It's a lot of things like that that are very generically sport, but they know how to tell a story. They know how to make a documentary. I think one thing that I didn't appreciate with this until I was doing some research afterwards was that... So rather than Senna, which was all documentary footage, 
This has a combination of um, archive footage, TV, what looks like some film stuff. So that definitely looks like sort of FOM type uh, type stuff. Um, but they've also, some of the footage in there was actually shot for the documentary. So they've done, I think, some of like the kind of cutaway B-roll-y type stuff. They, they didn't create replica cars or anything like that but it adds to the sense of cohesiveness it adds to the flow of it It, you know it doesn't feel like some documentaries oh Stuart they also did the Stuart documentary that we need to get to it's it's not like somewhere it's it kind of jumps from like photograph to voiceover to to interview and so on and I think as a film there's so much more depth than I was expecting it's a really compelling watch it doesn't um it doesn't drag it doesn't feel like it's kind of stretched out at any point but do be aware it is a tough watch there are scenes in it of i mean i mean villeneuve's crash it's not gory but they it doesn't have to be. It's the violence of it and the fact but, that you can see the state of the car afterwards. Yeah. And then I would argue that Didier Peroni in two races after that suffered a spookily yeah. similar accident, which, you know, it ended up with him suffering massive damage to his legs and his arms. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind- clear that those those cars from 1982 were had no concession like literally no. no concession to driver safety. The front end of the Ferrari car just falls off. It's made of tin foil, which is well, why it, drivers are thrown completely clear of the of the cockpit. It's it, it's a bit like it's, that the, it's in Senna. that overlap period. Yeah, it's it's like it's, they were in that overlap period before people started thinking how can we make these cars mm. stronger and lighter and more uh, and safer. If I'm right, if I'm if I recall, 1982 is the year that McLaren first did a carbon monocoque with Hercules. I, I could be wrong in that, but I'm fairly yeah, sure. Then, yeah. um, it's certainly the early 80s, but the Ferraris were just made out of cheese and hope. It was it was, it, it was just lightweight. The driver yeah, was essentially but yeah, ballast. Ballast. The thing is, Chris is right, there are... They do not shy away from showing you the accidents where footage exists. The Villeneuve one in particular is, oh, it's horrifying. And I, again, I, it's not I think gory. They lingered. It's just I, they lingered I think they too lingered much. And I remember, I can't remember what we were. I can't remember what it was we were watching or we were talking about a while ago that cut in um, Jules Bianchi's crash and showed that, and oh. I didn't need to see that. I don't think I needed to see. Um, mm-hmm. all of this crash, I think you could have cut away the moment the car takes flight. I don't think because it's horrible, so, right? Maybe, maybe that maybe that's part. Of, I I don't know. I'm whenever this kind of documentary happens or this kind of footage is out, and I watch it, and I I almost look away, and mm. I wish I had in some respects. I find these things very hard to watch, and I always think your imagination does more than showing it to you. I and mean, you don't need to explicitly go, look, this is the moment yeah. where he broke his spinal cord. Yeah, although it, it, it was kind of reminded me of that scene in Senna where Martin Donnelly is lying on the track, still strapped into his seat, 
and neither are in the car anymore. But the thing with the Villeneuve crash, and this was kind of what, this was kind of the point where I thought it sort of stepped over the line, which was, it happens. And it was like the Ratzenberger crash at, um, in, in Senna, where you kind of see it, and you kind of go, <gasps> and then it goes, and that's it. And I think the fact that they replayed it, because because the, the footage isn't that brilliant, but they kind of, they, they replay it, and I think they play it in slow motion. And it's grainy film, and I'm not even sure yeah. if it's not taken from behind the fence by fan footage. It's not... But I thought they judged it just about right in Senna with the Ratzenberger one. I hadn't seen it until I'd seen the movie. Oh, God. And it is clear the moment you see the angle his head's at that he died immediately. Yeah. That his, you know, his neck was broken. And they showed you just enough for you to get that shock. And then they took the image away and that was it. Yeah. And I, I think that was my only criticism with this is that I think that one scene they lingered too long on. I think... I think it's easy to forget now, particularly if you've come to Formula One and I don't want to, in the last 10 years, let's say, because I, I don't want to sort of say it's always a drive to survive thing. F1 cars are so safe now. You have no idea just how dangerous they were in the, in the 60s and the 70s. And I think you you almost have to shock people now and kind of go, look, it was really bad and it makes it a bit of a tough watch but I think that for the most part they handle that well um I would I would recommend this and I think honestly I wouldn't say this is if you like old F1 cars you know this isn't to watch I think if you just like F1 because the focus on this is the people I think it's a good story I think it's well told I it's definitely on Sky on demand because that's where I saw it. Yeah, that's um, where I got it. I don't know how widely else it is available. If you can find it, do watch it. Um, do let us know what you think. And uh, yeah, I, I would say it's. it's it, I think it's affected the two of us. I think that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, I did not know what to expect from this. I knew the outline of the story and I thought it might be interesting because I knew it had come out quite recently. And I'm, I think I'd heard somebody recommend it as being pretty good um i didn't expect to be as affected or moved by it as i was i didn't expect to enjoy the the period footage as much as i did and i didn't expect to empathize with both characters as much Mm. and i even felt sorry for jacques villeneuve for a while and that is that is saying something (laughs) because i really don't like jacques villeneuve (laughs) but uh yes it's called villeneuve peroni colon racing's untold tragedy there we go definitely get it on sky documentaries highly highly recommended from both of us let's move on to um what henry catchpole has been up to so this is Another one in the series of Henry Catchpole drives interesting and unusual cars in that um, Girardo currently have up up for sale. Girardo? Girardo? Have up for sale. Girardo. The Porsche 959 Sport prototype F7, um, which is, as as it says, like sometimes it happens with, with Ferrari supercars, it is the development car from Porsche when they were developing the 959 and trying to turn it into the sporty version, doing, I think, a gearbox endurance testing. And I've already mentioned him once, and I'm going to mention him again. I'm, I think that Henry 
there are parallels between Henry and Jason Camisa. And I say that with the highest of compliments. This film, very well shot. I wish Haggerty would would credit the the video people on on these. But it, it tells a story of the car. It tells a story of the time that Porsche were in. It tells the story of a product a project rather that I think lost like it lost four like three or four times the amount of money that they sold each car for on each car and and even sort of going into the you know Bill Bill Gates uh Bruce Canaper story in the States and how that basically led to the show and display law and then actually driving a car and actually showing because McLaren do this thing where they sell their XP like P1s and things. And when it's no longer a prototype, they take it all to bits and they clean up everything and they replace everything and they repair everything and put it together into what is essentially production spec. And yet Henry's driving this prototype where like this switch doesn't work and that's not connected and this thing, it doesn't exist. There's no air conditioning in it. And there's this, you know, the, the, the washer bottle is, is a hand crank next to the um, handbrake and things like that. And, it's, I, I, again, I mean, like we were saying earlier, it's lovely with, you know, Larry Chen finds people, Henry finds these cars, which are just weird and wonderful and would never get onto Top Gear. But YouTube is the perfect place for them. And I then went off and started looking at um, 959s, and there are even less of those on uh, on. Uh, for sale than there are uh, 918s. It always used to be my sort of historic supercar of choice, the 959. Like everyone would go, oh, the F40 or oh, the Countach or oh, the Diablo. Mine was always the 959. Yeah. Um, because I love the approach of it. I love the sort of very pragmatic Porsche of the whole thing. Um, but quite honestly, I, th- I there's a there's a chunk of me that feels like, well, I kind of had one in the 996 Turbo, which took lots of things from the 996 Five nine in terms of you know four wheel drive and hollow spoke wheels and water cooled engine. It didn't have sequential turbos and it wasn't <laughs> built for group re racing. But you know, it went like um, the clappers. <laughs> yes, I, it was a. a it, it was my little like there's a the little grills on the on the um the rear the lower rear bumper that always reminded me of the nine five nine. But it's always been a favourite of mine, and I very much enjoyed sort of a deep dive into the 959 and this particular example. Um, just again, you know, Henry finding a story in in even something as simple as a prototype being sold. Um, so, yes, I, do, I very much enjoyed this one. Do you know about the um, the Caniper 959SC project, I think they call it? No. So, so Bruce Caniper, as I mentioned, he of... Um, it, ha- it has a big museum. I, th- I think he 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 does racing, but it's not like Ganassi where it's his team. He sort of supports a lot of other people and will basically fix anything. Um, he did he did some good videos during lockdown with the Peterson Museum. Um, he actually was this is a complete tangent. When Ganassi sold their wet cars, they sold them through Bruce Canaper, so you could have actually bought an actual, you know, Ganassi works WEC 4GT. Anyway, so he's doing this, So he bought, he was one of two Americans who bought a 959 in period. 
He has sold them, worked on them, fixed them, modified them, the whole lot. And what he's doing now is a program where you can either request a car or you can send them your 959 and they will strip it, repaint it, replace things, replate things, custom interior, uh, Penske shocks. They've had wheels made that are the same style and I think hollow, and I hope magnesium, but in an 18-inch rather than a 17-inch so they can run modern tyres. And they do an engine upgrade as part of it, which uh, did Henry say that the that they were 500 horsepower in the sport spec, I think? Yeah, something. it's around that kind of point. About I that. think they were, yeah, for, yeah. for something, the regular, and then 500 for the sport. So, so they blueprint them, uh, all new internals, all new modern turbos, management, et cetera, et cetera. And they come out at a bit over 800 horsepower. And I was thinking, and it's, yeah, it's either 2 million, they will source a car for you and do the work, or it's yours and 750 grand. And you get a sort of, not resto mod, but just kind of OEM plus 959. And if I was just swimming in money like Scrooge McDuck, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think I have seen something about that, but yes. Probably from me. Quite, <laughs> quite possibly from you. Uh, right, what have you been watching outside of the stuff we talked about earlier on? What's your video and channel? So my video is one from a guy, an Australian called Stefan Jury, who does a lot of aviation YouTube and he does travel YouTube and a few other things. Um, and he lives in Melbourne. So in the build-up to the Australian Grand Prix this year, he visited Albert Park kind of regularly from just a park through to the grandstands being built, the barriers starting to go up, the pits buildings becoming a thing, all the way up to race day where he was there as a fan. And I mentioned earlier the video about Monaco. If you look on um, Google, like Google Maps or Google Earth, you don't realise just how, like, Albert Park is just that 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 circuit. You know, they literally just sort of close the roads off and put some barriers up and lay some gravel traps and then kind of go racing. Um, it's it's really fun. I mean, I, I love Stefan's videos. They're, they're great. But he, you know, it, 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 because it's almost like a sort of time-lapse thing, it's not a before and after. And he kind of goes around the track on his on his bike or on his scooter and he kind of ends up places he shouldn't be and it's it's a really good fun and it kind of shows you I think it's easy with street circuits that you kind of think oh they just turn up and they hang some sponsors banners and they paint, paint some curbs red and yellow and that's it there's so much work even before you get into you know running data cables and you know marshals posts and vendor stalls and all the other infrastructure that goes to the Grand Prix this is a really good, interesting, not too long watch that kind of shows you the before and after and the intermediate. It's well worth it. My channel is Driven Media, which used to be called Overdrive, um, thanks to the fact that their title doesn't change on the on the URL. We've mentioned Scott Mansell before, who does the Driver61 channel. And Driver61 that's just cracked, I think, a million subscribers, and he took one of his subscribers to um, uh, Paul Ricard 
did the uh, the Renault F1 experience, which is another great video. Anyway, it's Scott Mansell. So rather than just doing him talking about driving technique and motor racing, it's him and two other guys. And they it has a very... So they do they do challenges. It's kind of can you but you know what racing car can you can you make for five hundred quid? Can you put um, F one tires on a was it an MX five or a Caterham? Wasn't it a Caterham? The, Caterham. One, the one I saw. Um, but they've got into this cadence of doing a lot of stuff that has the feeling of early Top Gear, and I say that with genuine love and affection it's not like um the donut media stuff where it's when they've done like high car low car where it's it's quite glossily produced it is kind of low budget and fun and they kind of poke fun at each other but it's consistently high quality they've got the personalities to carry it off they've got you know scott's experience they've got just nice people having fun doing interesting challenges there's some thought that's gone into it there's some ideation that's gone into it um and it's it's really yeah it's really fun um well recommended what about you what are your picks for this week uh a couple of things um again i was sent this video uh, by our friend chris Frew. i wasn't going to watch this it's top gear getting a passenger ride in the Gordon Murray automotive T.50 V12 fan car. And I've been quite cynical about Gordon Murray and all the billions of videos that come around every time he, he reveals a new car where journalists fawn over his genius and he stands there in a floral t-shirt with his moustache and explains why everyone else is so stupid for not thinking of, why just make it lighter? It's like <laughs> no one's thought of that before. Um, I'm exaggerating slightly, but he he can rub me up the wrong way in, in some instances. However, take him out of the equation and put in multiple Indy 500 winner and IndyCar champion Dario Franchitti, who is something of a hero of mine, put him in a GMA T50, and all of a sudden <laughs> it's a different kettle of fish. This is a couple of the Top Gear um, guys alongside Dario in the T50 as they run it up and down Dunsfold. And it's the first time where I've thought, oh my Lord, that thing sounds spectacular. <laughs> There's... The onboard is fine, but it's when they cut to the exterior shot and you hear it just kind of howl its way down the runway like a 90s V12 Ferrari. It sounds remarkable. And then you go, okay, I can kind of see why that's worth two point something million. And the rest of the video kind of got me going, oh, you know, as new unobtainium goes, that does actually look like an appealing thing certainly it sounds like one mm. he did more in this video to convince me about gordon murray automotive than any of the other sort of walk arounds and talks and and fawning podcasts and so on with gordon murray sorry he is legitimately a car design legend but 
let's not kiss his ass too much. Yes. I really, really enjoyed this video. Really enjoyed it. I still think that the GMA T50 is a bit fussily styled, a bit too much like a retro F1. I'm not in love with the rest of it. But the newer cars, the T33, looks lovely. Mm. Really, really pretty and sounds probably much the same. And it's a bargain at only one point something million. <laughs> so much cheaper. But yes, this is worth watching for the sound alone. It's Be- spectacular. Before you get onto the channel, so... We have we have notes in front of us when we're recording this, so we, we kind of remember ourselves. Marty has a thing that says, channel, savage geese. <laughs> and I I'm I'm hoping this is literally just like people in rubbish cars being chased by flocks of angry geese. It's but I fear isn't. it's not. <laughs> I wanna kind of go with some kind of hot fuzz quote about swans at this point. <laughs> They'll break your arm. <laughs> no, look, find them swans. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yes, this is a channel. I cannot, I, I've looked to see why it's called Savage Geese. I don't know why. <laughs> they do, according to the description, videos covering technology, life, cars, and trucks. Uh, this is something I've been recommended by the algorithm and a couple of people. But uh, what, what, I what I started watching on theirs was a review which compared the 2023 Corvette Z06. I'm saying Z06 because that's what the model is. Yeah. Um, versus the 992 Porsche GT3, and it's a really in-depth. It's like 44 minutes long. They're at a circuit. They talk through the differences between the two cars. They drive them themselves. They describe the driving things. And then they both get lapped by a professional racing driver to within an inch of their lives. And you can see <laughs> the comparison in times. Um, it's just a very thorough review in a way that not too many people do anymore. Hmm. Like if you think even like top gear or you know if, if if chris harris is doing something for them it'll be over in 15 minutes mm. and this is 44 minutes long so it's really really in depth wow. really enjoyed it um they've got lots and lots of other videos on cars they've got the the 2023 cadillac ctsv blackwing um interesting stuff on bmw3 series lots and lots of stuff to check out on their channel um but if you want to start somewhere, I would say that that particular video, the Corvette versus the GT3, is a really interesting look, especially because I think the quality of their production's pretty darn good. It's one of the first videos where I've really felt like that Corvette engine isn't just a complete ripoff of the Ferrari 458. I mean, it kind of is, but it, it also isn't. And and that's to do with how they've recorded it and how they presented it. So really, really worth checking out. I just don't know why they're called Savage Geese because <laughs> neither one of them is savage or a goose. <laughs> or, or they have really good makeup. I don't know, but, you know, I should, I do feel like this is one of the times where a channel was named, I don't know, after a few beers and they wish they could change it, but they can't now. <laughs> they've had the T-shirts printed. Yes, they've got the T-shirts, they've got the URL, and now they're stuck with it. But there you go, Savage Geese, that's my it, recommendation. It, it, it's always great when we, we get these young and up-and-coming YouTubers with only 652,000 subscribers. Yeah, I know, Finger I know. On the pulse. It's, it's, it's hard to find up-and-coming channels that are not... I don't know, don't have hundreds of thousands of followers anymore. Um, but well, there you go. That's, if, that's... You, if you are one, come and uh, come and talk to us. Do tell us, do tell us. Um, which brings us to the end of another episode of the Auto Movie Podcast. Do share and like the podcast. Subscribe on your podcast repository of choice. Um, send us emails, 
comments at automoviepod.com pod or podcast comments at automoviepodcast.com and we are at automoviepod on the twitters and assuming you're still there and it hasn't all caught fire and broken by now um we don't have a blue tick by the way (laughs) never um but yes do let us know what you thought of the episode and if there's anything else you think we should be watching and until that time i think we're going to wander off and decide which of the Holy Trinity that we're going to spend all that money we don't have on. <laughs> I think it's still the 918 for me, but I, yeah, every now and then I'll see a P1 picture or a video and I'll think, oh, you know what? It's that big-ass wing and the swoopy McLaren styling. And I never, ever once think that I want a LaFerrari LaFerrari. Got to spend all that, uh, all that podcast money. Right. <laughs> Until next time, everyone.